But now he's shamed just like they are. Maybe that's what they saw. We look at it and we see something different. We see Jesus associated with these two sinners in his death as the exalted Christ fulfilling that prophecy. We look at this and we're reminded of the significance of why Jesus was dying. It was to save sinners, atone for sinners. Jesus said that's why he came. Mark 2, verse 17, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we look at the cross and we see God using this most shameful, wicked act in history to bring about our greatest good, our redemption. We look at it and know that it was due to the shameful crucifixion that God is able to turn sinners from being rebels into trophies of grace. And perhaps the very first trophy of grace, we could say it this way, won by Christ through this crucifixion, the very first trophy of grace was one of those very men crucified alongside him. John doesn't mention it, but Luke does. Luke 23. Listen to verses 40 to 43. And we know that these two men were were angry and bitter and they hated Jesus, cursing him. One began to change as the other one still derided Jesus. Luke 23, verse 40. But the other answered, rebuking him and said, Again, get this conversation going back and forth between the the two dying thieves, Jesus in the middle, the one saying, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we're receiving what we deserve of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying then to Jesus, Jesus Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing demonstration of God's grace and God's sovereignty and salvation in turning something so shameful into the means of redemption from sin. And this man, we can say something about him, Since he responded in belief, this man, by that response, proved to be one of the sheep that the Father had given to the Son. I'll remind you again of what John has given to us along the way that Jesus said. John chapter 6, verse 39. Jesus said this, This is the will of him, the Father who sent me, that of all he, the Father, has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. John chapter 10, several verses. Verse 7, so Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, meaning Gentiles, like this man on the cross. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. My sheep 
hear my voice, verse 27 says, and I know them and they follow me. That's what was going on there in those moments. This was one of the sheep given to the son. The son knew that. This man may have started out a rebel, but he heard the voice. He responded. He knew. He became a follower of Christ right there. He became one flock with the shepherd on the cross. So the point is that all the sheep do come to Christ, and some, like this thief on the cross, come even on their deathbed. Well, back to our text. Pilate had something else he wanted to do related to this execution of Jesus. Now, earlier in the chapter, we saw Pilate because of his total disdain for the Jews, he attempted, attempted to insult the Jews along the way. And now we find Pilate's desire to insult them again. And what he does now in the account prompts then the second observation of this material. Number one, the shame of the execution. Second observation. Number two, the irony of the proclamation. The irony of the proclamation. Now we need to know something about a custom in Roman executions. They would take a a sign, like a a tablet or something, a sign, and they would write on that sign the crime for which the person was being crucified. That would be a clear proclamation of the individual's guilt. And they would hang that sign around the, the victim's neck or sometimes it would be carried by somebody else walking out in front of the, of the victim through the streets and as they made their way to the execution site. And once there, once the prisoner was hoisted up and, and crucified then on the cross, they would take that sign and often affix it to the cross. And that custom is what this verse is referring to in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Now, of course, when it says that Pilate here wrote this, he didn't snap his fingers and ask for a pen, you know, and start writing. He ordered this to be written, but it's very clear that he was in control of the content of what was written, and the content Pilate chose makes it obvious what he was doing. Verse 19 goes on, it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now, as we've seen previously in the chapter, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, So technically, what's he going to write? There is no crime to put on the tablet. So he decided, you know, I'm going to take one parting shot at the Jewish leaders again just to get revenge for blackmailing me into ordering this man's death. In other words, Pilate ordered this to be written because he was saying to them, the Jews, this mess of a man is the only king you deserve and it's the only king you'll ever have. That's what was going on from Pilate's vantage point. But there was something else going on here that Pilate was not aware of, nor was anyone else in some sense. God, once again, was sovereignly orchestrating all of this, even overturning Pilate's attempt to insult the Jews and causing the sign to actually proclaim the truth about Jesus. What irony. Pilate thinking the sign is proclaiming an insult, all the time the sign is proclaiming the truth. Well, since the Romans usually crucified prisoners in public places, like alongside the highway, 
so the public would see the price of trying to rebel against the government, resisting Rome's authority. This sign would have been read by many people, verse 20 says, including many of the Jews. Verse 20, therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Think back to what Jesus had prophesied earlier in John chapter 12. For example, verse 23, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's going on. Verse 32, though, John 12, and I, if I am lifted up, there's the crucifixion, from the earth, I will draw all men to myself, meaning not every individual that breathes, but all men, all people, all nations, all tongues. So now, just as he had said, he was lifted up on this tree along the highway of Jerusalem in the eyes of all the people, and a sign is put on his cross that's actually proclaiming to the world who he truly is. He was Israel's king and the savior of the world. Again, F.F. Bruce writes this, the crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all. Because it is he who is stretched on the cross, he turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory, and he reigns from the tree. And to emphasize the breadth of the proclamation, verse 20 says it was written in more than one language. It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, the three languages commonly spoken in first century Palestine. Hebrew, the language in common use in Judea among the Jews. Latin, the official language of the military. Greek, the common language of the Roman Empire. And a language well known in Galilee as well. So from the Romans' perspective, they put this inscription in multiple languages to ensure that the crime resulted in being a warning in the maximum way to the, every segment of the populace that they would be warned But ultimately, it's all just serving God's ends by noting the three languages in which Jesus' kingship was declared, a detail only John gives us, by the way. The apostle is stating that Jesus is the king then for every nation, every people group, every ethnicity. Well, Pilate's parting shot was successful as far as irritating the Jews went, verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, And you can sort of see this. I mean, they see the sign and, you know, they're gasping. I don't know where Pilate was. Maybe they're running in a little group back to the praetorium. Do not write that. Don't write the king of the Jews. But write this. Write that he said, I am the king of the Jews. I mean, they felt the sting of Pilate's jab at them because they did not accept Jesus as their king. And, And to add... Salt in the wound, Pilate intentionally chosen to mention the town Nazareth. Why? Because Nazareth was this insignificant Galilean village. It was considered backwards. The inhabitants considered backward by the city folk, the sophisticated Judeans. They would look down on the Nazarenes with scorn and contempt. Reminds me of my little town where I grew up. You may remember this back in John 1. Remember when Philip met Jesus and he went and found Nathanael and reported to Nathanael about this one he had found, Jesus. Remember what Nathanael replied back to John 1.46. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
That's why Pilate put it there. This idea was ludicrous to the Jews that a, that a victimized man from such a town like that, dying as a criminal in a shameful way, could be their king. So they demanded that Pilate change the wording and, and say that Jesus was a, trying to appear to be a king, that Jesus was an imposter, right, that he said he was a king. But Pilate was enjoying all this, seeing them irritated. So he bluntly refused, verse 22. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. He was firm. That firmness wasn't motivated by strength of character by any means. Pilate was just hurt and bitter over being manipulated by the Jews. He was basically saying, I'm going to humiliate the ones who humiliated me. But nevertheless, here again is an example of God using sinful men to accomplish his sovereign purposes. This animosity between Pilate and the Jewish leaders ensured that the governor would ironically proclaim who Jesus is with that sign. You know, when we get on Wednesday nights, when we get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, we'll find a sign of sorts articulating this all again. When Jesus comes back in power and glory, Revelation 19, 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The shame of the execution, the irony of the proclamation, we've made those observations, but I want to go back as we conclude. I want to make an additional comment about one particular thought in the passage, and that's this idea that Jesus was taken outside the city to be crucified as a sacrifice for our sins. That fact parallels something the Israelites had done for centuries as part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. After the animals were sacrificed to atone ceremonially, at least, for sin, the animals themselves, even a type of Christ to come, his sacrifice fulfilled all those sacrifices. But there was something else. After they would sacrifice the animals, the Jews would discard the remains, the carcass, outside the walls, especially the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. Listen to Leviticus 26, verse 27. But the bull, the actual animal, the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, the bull and the goat, the bodies, shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Inside the camp, that was holy ground. Outside, that was like a dump. So there is an overall comparison that is important here. Jesus' crucifixion took place outside the city. It was outside with the outcast, just as the Day of Atonement sacrificial animals were thrown out, cast out to this unholy, non-sacred area. So am I just reading something into this? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 for a moment. I didn't make it up. I'm just reporting the news. Hebrews 13 verses 11 and 12. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, 
that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. This was God's eternal plan that Jesus would not only be crucified by the Romans, but it would suffer, he would suffer outside the gate. Even the location was another aspect of how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament sacrifices. Here he is, the perfectly holy one, identified with sinners, identified with the sinful world, the world of shameful, sinful outcasts like you and I. And there's nothing we could ever do to fix that. We sang earlier in the hymn, The Solid Rock, that we can stand before God. We never could do that on our own. Our sin prevents us from coming to God and having a relationship with Him. So Christ identified with our shame, our sinfulness. He was crucified, as one writer said, on our holy ground, as it were. And therefore, He then makes His holiness, His righteousness available to us in exchange for our sin that He atoned for on the cross. Still in verse In chapter 13 of Hebrews, it means there's only one proper response. Hebrews 13, verse 13. So, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. That is a call to follow Jesus. Even though he had to endure reproach by being crucified like a criminal. In other words, even though he was an outcast, He's saying, follow me, and we too then will be viewed that way as outcasts if we are following him and living for him. We will be at odds with the culture and the people around us. We'll be at odds with the minds of the people of the world, like our neighbors, the people we work with, even some family members. Christ himself said it this way in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's the same point, really. We take up our cross when we follow Christ. Following Christ involves, in a sense, that we identify with Him now. We bear His disgrace that He bore. It it involves a real shift in our our, our goals, our our mindsets. It's no longer living for goals like prosperity or popularity or or safety or comfort. No, we go out to Him and we go saying... uh, I'll go anywhere you want, anytime, any place. I come to follow you to obey your commands. There's a separation that happens then, therefore. There's a separation that happens when we go out to Jesus outside the camp and bear his disgrace as well. That separation can mean the loss of friends, the loss of relationships with family members. Who knows? Someday even the loss of earthly possessions or our lives. As the world's hatred of Christ and Christians increase, but this is who we are. If we follow him, we are outcast like him. But there is great joy in that. Joy in knowing that your sins are forgiven. Joy in knowing that the Savior loves you eternally. 
regardless of what the world thinks. So rejoice in that if you're a follower of Christ. If you're not a follower of Christ, then the the invitation is clear. Come out. Come out to Him. He'll forgive your sin. He'll set you on a, a new path to walk with Him. It's a path lined with scorn by the world, but it's a path lined with joy in serving Him. In fact, it's a path to heaven. Paul puts it this way in Romans 10, 9. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for reminding us again what Christ our Savior did for us, living the perfect life that we could never live, perfectly holy, we could never be that, and then taking upon himself the shame that is our shame, our disgrace, our fallenness, so that the divine wrath was poured out on him instead of us. What a thought, what a wondrous thought that is for all who are his followers, his sheep. So, Lord, if we know you as our Lord and Savior today, may we be grateful once again in our hearts for what you've done for us. I pray for anyone here who is not a true follower, that this would be the day that they would hear the call, hear the voice, saying, come out, follow me. Give them the faith and repentance they need. In our Savior's name, amen.